Hey, are you awake? Wake up. Come. Hold my hand. Close your eyes. Don't look down. Don't think about it. With the camera three, we jump in, okay? Okay, I'm ready. One, two, three. Ripple Puddle. Welcome to Ripple Puddle. Welcome to Ripple Puddle. Rip, rip, rip. Oh. Ripple Puddle. Ripple Puddle. The name of this episode is Superpowers, but I want to note that what we're talking about here is far more subtle, delicious, and inherent than that. And you have that in you. Think of your best superpower. Have you always had it? How did you discover it or first realize it? Do you ever consider developing or training a new one? If so, you are not alone. Carla and I are working on developing our intuition. How's it going for you, Carla? It's been a challenge. It's hard to turn off the tapes that run in my head, the analysis of everything. The analyzing makes us all feel like we're somehow in control. Self-affirms our place as intellectual beings. It is also what holds back the development of unexplored abilities we don't know how to label. According to Professor of Philosophy Massimo Piliucci, the most important thing to remember when practicing any skill or talent, whether it be a physical or intellectual activity, is the mindful attention that is required to the areas where mistakes are still being made after reaching reasonable proficiency. Intense focus is needed to correct them. If we are able to direct our attention in such a way, there is little we can't do. Believe in your force. Sharpen your tools. Share your gifts. It must be exercised. This is information that will shape future societies. It's a way in which we will continue to develop innovation, seek diversity, understand psychology, and therefore evolve our species. Ready to eavesdrop in? Let's take the word superpower off the table. Think about your favorite painter, philosopher, writer, or computer innovator. They carry secrets that they've identified with themselves. They develop their instincts and gifts in ways that aren't pegged to the dominant norm. They viewed the world differently than those around them and didn't follow acceptable cultural ideologies. So if there were a way for you to sharpen these gifts, where would you begin? Emily Meyer Sanchez shares her story. So my superpower is that I can know everything. I can know everything that has already happened. I can know everything that's happening right now. And I can know everything that's going to happen. And I know this sounds really weird. I also know that it's not a superpower that's just mine. It can be anybody's. I don't think I'm special. I don't think it's just my superpower. Um, I know that this is when I really tap into this knowledge that anyone can have access to. Um, I think I've started to call it like the universe or something like that, or the energy that everybody, that I'm, I'm made of, that's making me happen, that's making you happen, all of it. Um, when I really tap into it and pay attention to it, get into it, I, 
it's just like I get everything that's already happened. I'm at peace with everything that's happening right now. I dream about things and then they happen the next day or a week or so afterwards, little things even. Um, uh, I was like really troubled and thought it was weird. I'd, um, and I tap into this knowledge, I'll have dreams and then something really dumb will happen a day or so later. And I'm like, why did I need to know that ahead of time? That stupid little thing that somebody was gonna say this silly little thing to me. Why did I already need to know it? And I think it was just like a sign or a way for me to start realizing that, hey, you know, maybe it wasn't something mind blowing, but I already knew this. Little things, I think I'm not alone. This I'm, I'm not the only one that's experienced this where you have a dream and for example, I had a dream that I woke up from that my little sister was really troubled because she had a friend that died and then later that day I talked to my sister. She called me because she was really upset because a friend had died um, and she was in another state. The friend that had died was in another state. The way that I first realized that I had this power was that I, I just started meditating and um, you know, like a lot of people start out just focusing on their breath and then it kind of develops from there. You, go, you get like a little farther, a little deeper into like this other place and I don't have the words for all of it, but I'll just try. So it's like you get to another, another place of consciousness and I really started practicing a lot more frequently and I would especially meditate before, um, as I laid in my bed before I would fall asleep at night. And as I became more practiced in meditation, I would actually gradually go from this like awake state to somewhere in between and then a sleeping state to where it all just kind of mixed. It was like I was walking into sleep instead of it being this kind of more drastic thing where you're just worn out at the end of the day, you you hit the bed and you're, you're out. Um, instead of just this gradual kind of thing. And somehow that practice helped me to go into sleep. And then in the next morning, as I woke up, it was like I was meditating out of the sleep as well. And somehow beginning that practice, I just started to, that's when I really became aware. I would have, I started having dreams where things would happen, uh, things would happen um, in the future after the dream. So that's when I realized like, I wasn't freaked out or anything like that. And I don't think I'm special. So I wanted to try to figure out what's, what's the deal with this. Um, there has to be some kind of reason. Um, why do we need to know these little things ahead of time? And I think it's just to help you bring peace it's helped me to feel peaceful in the present tense, in here and now. Um, that everything just already always was and everything is and everything will be. It's just a feeling of tranquility and peace. Um, and um, it's not for just me alone, anyone can have it. The life of a man is a self-evolving circle, which from a ring, imperceptibly small, rushes on all sides outwards to new and larger circles, and that without end. The extent to which this generation of circles, wheel without wheel will go, depends on the force or truth of the individual soul. For it is the inert effort of each thought 
having formed itself into a circular wave of circumstance, to heap itself on that ridge, and to solidify and hem in the life. But if the soul is quick and strong, it bursts over that boundary on all sides, and expands another orbit on the great deep, which also runs up into a high wave, with attempt again to stop and to bind. But the heart refuses to be imprisoned, in its first and narrowest pulses, it already tends outward with a vast force and two immense and innumerable expansions. M.C. Ralphie, Wildman, Waldo Emerson. Larabee does not consider herself brave at all. And yet, she could match any Marvel superhero with her own brand of abilities. Here's her story. So, I'm about 100 pounds, soaking wet, tiny little thing with long pink hair, and it's the 90s, and I'm working in a club that is very, very gay, New York City, downtown club. This is kind of pre-hipsters. We were hip before hipsters. It was the kind of place where they didn't have bottle service. It was sort of like a garage with a disco ball and a coat check, and we had lots of sons and daughters of famous people who wanted to be rock stars and bikers and drag queens and nobody with a suit could ever, ever get in. They just couldn't get past the door, even if they offered us like $500, which actually happened. And it was the kind of place where like, you know, Green Day might play or like Mick Jagger would show up, but we kind of gave away all the drinks and let all the cool people in for free and didn't let anyone else in. So we didn't have any money. So we had to do a hip hop night on Sunday nights. And so here we are, this kind of crew of bar employees, you know, all sort of, you know, skinny, white, gay, artsy, foofy people having this party, which was like all black, hardcore hip-hop, tough New York City, you know, run by this promoter. And uh, they were awesome. And they loved us because we were like a bunch of fairies just like flitting around the room and they just didn't know what to make of us, but they, they loved us. And, you know, we had this sort of, you know, a waitress who would, you know, come in and like bunny ears and a tail and like a pink cat suit with like platform shoes. And she'd be waitressing in that environment. And if they all had their big poofy coats on and the contrast was hysterical, but we never had any problems. It was totally peaceful. We all loved the Fugees. The DJ would pop on the Fugees, and we all hit the dance floor together. And it was packed, and it was a hugely successful night. And it was great. And it went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. We had all these wonderful security who had helped us sort of, you know, get that party into the club. And they were Jamaican, and they were sort of like these really peaceful, just beyond enormous guys in their big coats, you know, and they were wonderful. And whenever anybody would start any problems, they'd be like, hey, man, let's go outside and smoke it out. And it's like smoke a joint with them. And then everything would be fine. So we never had the police there or the fire department. And it was great. And I, you know, I used to make a key lime pie shots. And me and all the little, they used to be like, what's up, home girl? And we used to do key lime pie shots. And one of them cornrowed my hair. It was great. So one night, at the end of the night, it was a particularly tough night because the ice 
ice machine had broken. The AC wasn't working. Like everything that was supposed to be hot was cold and everything that was supposed to be cold was hot and somebody slipped and it was, you know, on the dance floor and almost cracked their head open and we couldn't find a mop because someone stole the mop heads because they thought it was funny to use it for a costume for the gay night. And it was just one of those nights where everything went wrong. So it's the end of the night and I'm so tired, so tired. And it's, you know, after four in the morning and I, there's the way it was set up was there was, you'd walk in and to the right, there was, you know, some banquette seats and then a long bar. And then there was kind of just beyond the bar, there was a, like a wall and you couldn't see past that wall. And then the other side of that wall was more of the club. So if you were at the bar and you looked sort of straight ahead, you just saw this wall. And if you looked to the left, you could see the door where everyone came in and the dance floor, but you couldn't see what was going on on the other side of that wall. And there were doors on the other side of the wall that opened to the outside. And I guess they opened it up because it was so hot. Um, And so I was behind the bar, not knowing the doors were open with all the money out. Like all the money that we made for the whole night. And we had made lots of money. And I was so tired that I wasn't even counting it. I was just trying to put the ones in a pile, the fives in a pile, the tens. Like that's how tired and probably a little bit drunk I was. I was drunk. I was actually drunk. Okay, so... And I couldn't count. And um, so I'm just standing there doing that. And I, and there's a mirror, which, of course, shows you that wall and not much else. And someone came up to the bar. And I could kind of see them, you know, the big puffy coat and some dreads. And I just thought, oh, that's, uh, that's Lucas. That's our security guy, Lucas. Oh, I didn't realize he was working tonight. Whatever. Crazy night. Comes up to the bar. And he goes... And, 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 and I hear, I see something in his hand and I hear, give me all your money. And I think, oh, seriously, Lucas, like I'm trying to count here. I don't need this. And I turned around and I said, just give me that. And I took the gun out of his hand and I thought, this is heavy for a toy gun. And then suddenly I heard a commotion and our actual security tackled this guy who wasn't our security. He was actually a robber. And I had taken a real gun out of his hands, not realizing that he wasn't our security goofing around. I just took the gun and he was tackled. And it turned out that he had committed a crime in another bar not too far away. And I was a great, big oblivious hero. And I never let on to anyone that I didn't know that it wasn't a real gun. (laughs) Oh, and earlier that night, um, he had gone into another bar and he had shot at one person and shot another person. And they didn't die, but that's not nice. So he was like a big old douchebag. And I took his gun. So it was like game over. So I was like super macho, even though I'm like not macho, because I totally didn't know what I was doing. And I was like, yeah, yeah, bring it. I'm from New York. Then they hailed me as this big hero and called the police and the police were like, you're such a hero. And they wanted to like do a story on me. And I was like, oh, no, that's okay," Because I knew all my close friends would know that I there's no way I would. I'm not brave. There's no fucking way I would take a gun out of somebody's if I knew it was a real gun. I'm not an idiot. I'm not brave. There's no way. Seriously, if someone 
took away my Bloomingdale's charge card, I would have given up state secrets. And my friends knew that. But I wasn't going to let everybody else know. This world in itself is not reasonable. That is all that can be said. But what is absurd is the confrontation of this irrational and wild longing for clarity whose call echoes in the human heart. The absurd depends as much on man as on the world. For the moment, it is all that links them together. Al B. Camus. Some days you wake up and you just know. Know that you're supposed to call a friend. Know that your podcast made it on the new and noteworthy list in iTunes. Know that someone is thinking about you. Know that you're supposed to witness a rare moment in time. Walking into that moment needs no permission. J-Bone tells his story. I liked the 70s in Detroit. It was different. It was easy. I guess there had been plenty of strife that I didn't know a lot about because, you know, I was young, I was a kid, whatever. Coleman Young was the first mayor that I knew, and he just happened to be the first black mayor of a major city. There had been black mayors of small cities here, small towns here and there, but a major city, it was unheard of. He reminded me a lot of how my parents were, how people were. People cursed back then. They were hardcore. They didn't have... They didn't put on airs about political. There was no fucking such thing as political correct. You just said what you said. You spoke your mind. And Coleman Young was a lightning rod. He was a cursing mayor. He would tell the press to go fuck themselves. <laughs> and uh, one time there was there was a question from someone in the press. Uh, oh, Mayor Young, why do you continue to curse and belittle people of the press that he thought about it apparently. He said, well, sometimes things can be better expressed with an explicative motherfucker. Well, Coleman was pretty folksy because, I mean, he was he was from the hood and he just was one of those I'm not taking no shit types and he wouldn't. So Coleman Young died. I was a stockbroker and I was working at Prudential Securities downtown at the Renaissance Center. I told him my, uh, my branch manager, I'm getting ready to leave for a little while. I'll be back. So where are you going? I said, Coleman Young's funeral. And he looked at me and was like, well, I didn't say you can go to Coleman Young's funeral. I was like, I know. And I looked at him and he looked at me. And we just kind of stared at each other for about a minute. And he was like, all right. And I walked out, I mean, because this is like, this is all I've known all my life was this mayor. So I'm going to pay my respects. And I left from downtown. And uh, it was on the west side of this church, kind of the northwest side of Detroit. Greater Grace Temple. And it was an interesting church because it was kind of a modern built, like in the 80s. It was a big place. I As I approached you know, toward the neighborhood of the church, there were some streets that were closed off, specifically about maybe about a quarter mile away from the church. There was basically the streets were barricaded for the procession or whatever that was going to happen. And so I parked and I got out and walked about a quarter mile to the church. 
And so, you know, I mean, I was dressed. I was a stockbroker, so I had a suit and a wool coat. Mm-hmm. I had a hat. I actually had a derby on. I got it from downtown Henry the Hatter. Real nice hat. As I approached on foot and I came in the far gate of the parking lot and walked toward the front door. And um, there was a velvet rope, you know, and I guess it was probably limited. But it was just, you know, it was a big empty parking lot because everything was kind of, you know, cordoned off. And the hearse was sitting there full of flowers kind of next to the door. And I kind of walked up and hung out there for about maybe 15, 20 minutes. The guy at the velvet rope, a couple security guards, he opens one rope. And so I approach the door and, you know, I'm one of the first of three people in line. And the security guard looks at me and he's like fucking seven feet tall. And he's looking down at me and he's just staring at me. I'm looking at him and he was like, you know, there's a line, don't you? I'm like, yep. And he's looking at me. I'm looking at him. And so he just opened the velvet rope and I walked right on in there, right? And there was three people kind of right behind me, but he just let me walk in and, you know, I walked in. But when I got inside, the church was packed full all the way full and there was ushers everywhere and they were ushering everyone and they pointed me all the way up to the very 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 last row all the way in the back at the top the very very last seat there was one seat and that i went and took that seat (laughs) that was me in the corner all the way at the top and uh you know, I got a feel for how big this place was. It's like, you know, it's like bigger than the Fox Theater. It's this big, giant, huge-ass church. There's a big old stage down there, way down there. And, you know, they've got the microphones and, you know, some some of the Detroit dignitary are coming up, you know, you know, important press, famous, all kinds of, you know, business people. And, you know, it was, it was an interesting out, outpouring because... At that point, it wasn't political, it wasn't racial, and even people who gave him a hard time were there eulogizing and, and whatnot. And it was person after person, and it was, you know, a procession. Um, I probably saw like 15 or 20 people go, you know, back to back. Um, where Aretha Franklin came up, she was one of, you know, she's one of near the last people, and she came up and you know, started explaining how her history of being in Detroit, her history of knowing, you know, Coleman Young before when he was an activist and was political, wasn't in power of, of you know, mayor or anything like that. She's taught, she spoke real passionately about this, you know, her interaction with Coleman Young. And... You know, Aretha Franklin being who she is, you know, she her her vocal got to be melodic and, you know, just became a song to where, you know, in the last few few words of a few seconds of what she was saying, she just sang it. And when she sang it, you know, the soul that came out of her pushed the whole crowd back from the very I, I sitting in the back, I had this perspective. She Belted out a 
few notes and the whole front row just backed up and every way it was a wave a wave came all the way up through the whole church all at once and it was the most amazing thing i'd ever seen it was the most amazing thing i'd ever heard because i never heard anyone just you know sing like that from the heart i mean she sang maybe five or seven words but it was the most powerful delivery i had ever ever experienced never it's never been matched not even by her in performances that i've seen her in subsequently and the people who were there first got hit with it first and it, it was an instant but i could see it and yeah it was unlike anything i've ever seen since but i have i have seen building implosions where an explosion actually hits a shockwave and the air actually moves and I, I it, it looked like that mm -hmm. it looked like an actual vibration a sound wave something that broke the sound barrier it was awesome and uh, you know after probably another half hour i left you know we filed out and when i got back to work my father called me he said how was the funeral and i said how did you know i was at coleman young's funeral he's like you were on tv I was like, it was? He was like, yeah, you were standing next to the hearse for about, like, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes. Hot tips. Hot tips. The next time you find yourself trapped in a social setting where the atmosphere has gone stale, I suggest turning to Danceful Revival. All that's needed is a dance floor, which will undoubtedly be empty, or an open space with enough room to move freely and not injure any of the people around you, a kick-ass song, and no fear. Either request a song from the DJ or put one on yourself, move to the dance floor, shut your eyes, and just go for it. The initial reaction from the people around you will be judgment and confusion. But once they move past that, they'll start joining in thus resulting in a revived dance floor and a revived party. This episode's hot tip is brought to you by Kelly Zamanik, visual artist and hospitality manager for large parties at the Cosmopolitan Resort and Casino in fabulous Las Vegas. Her video series, Paper Dolls, was featured during episode one, Play With Dollies. More from the series can be found at thatmagazinemouth.tumblr.com or check out her link on our website. Creativity, it extends far beyond artistic uses. Creativity can be used in our conversations, daily problem solving, and so much more. And it makes the world so much more enjoyable. Here's Ryan with a story. Uh, so a few years ago, I was at a dance performance at my friend's performance space in Williamsburg. And uh, it was a, you know, it was an ensemble piece and there were a lot of moments that were um, funny, but then there were a lot of moments that were sort of quieter and a little more serious. Like uh, there was this one bit where they were doing, each of the dancers were doing like status updates, like they were on Facebook. And so they were saying like, uh, they ate too much chicken today, you know? And then um, as, the play, as the piece went on though, they got like sort of more serious and more personal. But every time after these status updates, there was this woman sitting in the audience who would just clap like after each one. And then during all of the dance pieces that where there's music playing, she would clap along with the along with the 
music in the dance pieces. And it was a pretty small audience. There were only like 12 or 13 people there. So it was very, it was a big presence in the house when she would clap. And then even as the piece went on and it got a little more serious and it kind of came to like the emotional climax, there were slower dance pieces that were like ballads. Then the whole time (laughs) she would just be clapping along with the rhythm of the music. And then they would do these Facebook status updates and it would be something like, my father has never really understood me. And she would just be like, <laughs> like after each one, she was just like expressing herself pretty loudly in this kind of tiny house. Like I like when people are, you know, a little vocal and stuff, but it was like incredibly distracting to the point where I didn't even know by the end of the show, like what was going, what I had just been watching because I had just been paying attention to her and sort of seething towards her for the last like 25, 30 minutes. So I'm sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, I should say, I should tell her, like we're having, we're having a shared experience where everybody's in the house. And I was, and I'd been sharing looks with the other people in the audience as well, as she was doing this kind of looks of like eye rolling and frustration and like, oh, this is really distracting. And so finally I was, I was thinking about it. I was like, maybe I should say something to her. Cause I'm not, I'm not able to, concentrate on the show at all and I don't know why I wouldn't why shouldn't I say something to her I know it's like out of protocol like most people wouldn't say anything and that's sort of the accepted behavior but why is that maybe I should question that maybe I should just like say something like what's the worst thing that can happen if I just ask her if I just tell her it's distracting and I I don't know what that convention is about I don't know why everyone's in that habit I think that's a little too uptight Maybe society should loosen up a little bit and talk to each other and uh, making these whole justifications in my head. But eventually, I finally, I, sn- I kind of quietly snuck over to the seat next to her. And then I sat next to her and it's in the dark and the show is going on on the stage. Uh, it's a relatively small theater. So the, you know, the performers are only like 15 feet away from us. And so I, I turned to her and I say, hey, I'm so sorry, but... Um, your clapping is like really distracting me and I can't, I find that I can't focus on the show. And she gives me this look (laughs) that would like melt cheese. And I'm just like, uh, and she's like, what did you just say to me? And I'm like, I, I just, I can't, I'm having trouble focusing on this show. I'm sorry. I, I, I apologize, but I, I just can't, I can't focus on the show. And she says, Oh, Okay. And gives me this, you know, this really dirty look. And so that's one thing. And I kind of, I mean, the, the dumb part about it is that after that, there was literally like three minutes of the show left. And then it was over. And I kind of felt like an ass for having said that at that point. But it was fine. So after the show is finished, you know, everybody claps, obviously, during the uh, bows and things. And we all go to the bar down the street. Um, a friend of mine, you know, had put the show together, so I was going to go have drinks with everybody in the cast and everything. And then it turned out this woman who was who I had spoken with, the clapping woman, was the mother of one of the dancers. So she's at the bar, and I'm obviously, like, trying to avoid her for, you know, the the bulk of the time that I'm, like, having drinks and chatting with people and things. But then as the night goes on... The crowd thins out, and there's only like seven people attached to the show left at the bar, including myself and this woman. So we all sort of start gathering around one booth, and as I get cl- as I come up closer to her, she makes eye contact with me, 
And she gives me this really, like, hard stare. And she goes, were you at the show tonight? Which I thought was, <laughs> was a little silly. But I was like, uh, yeah, yes, yes, I was. And she said, did you ask me to be quiet when I was clapping for my son? And I said, uh, yeah, I was, you know, I was finding the, I was finding the clapping like it was really hard. She said, if you ever asked me to, you better consider yourself lucky that I love my baby and I respect that he was up there on stage. Otherwise, and was literally like growling at me in the bar, sort of threatening me and obviously very mad that I had asked her to do that. So uh, I was like, yeah, no, I just, uh, I, I, I understand. Like, I didn't know what, I just was having trouble watching the show. It was actually very hard for me to focus on the show. And she said, you better listen to me and I was like I'm sorry I uh, I have ADD which was kind of a <laughs> kind of a bullshit line <laughs> but I wanted to like stop having to justify what I was talking about so I thought I'd bring in like an official sort of medical justification for why I couldn't deal with her clapping during the show and then she as soon as I say I have ADD, she stops and she looks at me and the look in her eye changes and all of a sudden she reaches out her arms and she goes, you have a disorder? Baby, I'm bipolar. <laughs> and she gives me a huge hug. And uh, we end up like drinking beers together that night and just discussing like what our situations are like and what it's like to you know try and get along with everyday uh, trials and tribulations of having, having a disorder. And uh, then before we leave the bar, she gives me her phone number and tells me to uh, call her up sometime that she'd like to see me again. And then, yeah, and then we talked a couple of times. And eventually she, at one point, I was helping her like order software for her computer or something she needed she was very confused and I spent like an hour and a half with her on the phone like helping her figure out like you know in a very sort of like grandson kind of way helping her figure out how to deal with this technological issue that was beyond beyond her comprehension We're only here for a short while, and I think it's such a lucky accident, having been born, that we're almost obliged to pay attention. In some ways, this is getting far afield. I mean, we are, as far as we know, the only part of the universe that's self-conscious. We could even be the universe's form of consciousness. We might have come along so that the universe could look at itself. I don't know that, but we're made of the same stuff that stars are made of, or that floats around in space. But we're combined in such a way that we can describe what it's like to be alive, to be witnesses. Most of our experience is that of being a witness. We see and hear and smell other things. I think being alive is responding. MC Marky Strand. Do you want to learn a system of playing blackjack that will always make you money in Vegas? Want to catch the heater of a lifetime? Well, you have to bring in one key element, a superpower, if you will, that has nothing to do with luck. 
Alex Taylor tells our next story. So I've always been a fan of Las Vegas. My first trip was in New Year's Eve 1993 with my friend Matt, and we uh, got a room last second at a hotel called the Maxim, which is now the Westin off of Flamingo. It was pretty disgusting. We called it the Maxim Pad. And uh, I would go to Las Vegas every year since 1993. And I always played craps because craps was the most fun and uh, all the action and betting a lot of money and always good socializing at the table. As I got to enjoy Las Vegas more and as I got older, I was 18 when I first went to Las Vegas. I started to tell my Uncle Sam about some of my trips to Las Vegas. And my Uncle Sam is my fa most favorite uncle and uh, all my great stories from my childhood with relatives almost uniformly involved my Uncle Sam. So I was going to school, I was in college. My Uncle Sam called me and said, uh, do you wanna to go to the Bahamas with me? I said, sure, I'll go to the Bahamas with you. Uh, I really didn't understand what the point of the trip was. He had a free trip to the Bahamas to go to a casino called the Crystal Palace. And I said, sure, I'll meet you there. Flew down to the Bahamas, I met him in Miami, got a puddle jumper over to the Bahamas checked in and on the way there my uncle Sam is telling me the story about who we're going with. There was his friend Eddie Fisher who is a casino host and independent casino host that would bring gamblers to different casinos. We were going with this lady, this old lady that had been an accountant all her life and this was well before any type of online gaming or quite frankly before any type of really good gaming software had been developed for the consumer and she had developed a system of betting in blackjack and there was no there's no counting cards and uh, it wasn't particularly difficult to understand although on the plane ride over my uncle Sam and his friend Larry Schwartz explained to me that the system was betting more when you're winning and less when you're losing and that was at the, the crux of this system that they were teaching I thought that that sounded trite and stupid and I said okay well that's interesting so I kept on trying to get at them whether they counted, whether she was counting cards or what made the system interesting because basically it just seemed like perfect play blackjack. And perfect play blackjack is that card that you can get at the gift store which shows you what to do and when. And basically if you play perfect play blackjack with most house odds, it's about 1%, 49.5% to the player and 50.5% to the house. And that's if you play perfectly. I never really liked blackjack. It went pretty slow. It was fairly boring and I accepted that the odds were never in your favor in any of the games so if I'm gonna gamble I might as well gamble in a fun game like craps. Well the one thing that I found intriguing about this woman was that she had been kicked out of a couple smaller casinos one in the Bahamas one in Puerto Rico and she wasn't kicked out she was just told not to come back she they didn't want her her to play there anymore. I didn't have a whole lot of money I was in college and so I wasn't going to the if I was going to spend money gambling I was going to spend it in Las Vegas so I was went to the Bahamas enjoyed the beach enjoyed the pool and I would just go and watch her play and I watched her start out she was betting hundred dollar hands and I watched her go through two ten thousand dollar markers pretty quickly in maybe three hours I was watching how she was playing and Basically, the system was a system of perfect play involving when to press your bets and when to double down. Uh, so the system basically was based on if you catch a heater, you're betting more when you're winning, meaning that you win, you lose, you win, you lose, you win, you lose. It never goes like that in blackjack. You win a bunch, you lose some. You win some more, you lose some more. But there's always streaks, losing streaks and winning streaks. And in the long run, you end up losing. Her system was based on making sure that you're betting more when you're winning. 
The system was based on perfect play, but betting more when you're winning. And so that was done by pressing your bets. So if you win, you don't take any money, you press that bet and you double it up. And then if you win again, you take the original bet down and then you've doubled up, then you've taken it up to three times your original bet. And then you take the whole winning after that. And basically, if you win 15 hands in a row, you're gonna make a ton of money. And if you lose 15 hands in a row, you're gonna lose a little bit of money. So the only thing that can really hurt you in this system is if you basically win, lose, win, lose, win, lose. If you catch a streak, you'll always win. So I spent the whole trip watching this woman uh, bet and learning the system. I watched her win about $80,000 that trip. Next year, I'm living in Washington, D.C. now. My uncle calls me, says, you want to go to the Bahamas? I said, yeah, is that lady going again? So yeah, she is. Yeah, absolutely, I'll go. So this time I really went and really spent some time watching her and I learned the system backwards and forwards. And I asked her if she'd mind taking time to teach me the system and she didn't mind at all. From now on, if I ever play blackjack, I play the system. I went to Las Vegas for the first time playing the system in 1998, playing at the Rio. I basically, I bet small. I, mean, I didn't have any money, so I bet $10 bets. That was my start. So it goes 10, you win, 10 goes to 20, 20 goes to 30, 30, you take it all down, 30, you take it all down, then 30 goes to 50, 50 goes to 60. And it's just a system that she has worked out. And the way she worked it out was playing hundreds and hundreds, thousands of hands at her kitchen table, taking notes and basically coming up with this all by herself. That first trip, betting $10, $10 hands, I won something like $1,700 and then I went back the following year and I won another $1,500. Went there for the Super Bowl when the Rams were playing the Titans. I didn't bet any games except for a proposition on the first touchdown, bet $100 on that and that actually paid off. And then I went to the tables and basically because I had won $1,000 or $1,200 on the proposition, I said, well, you know, this time I'm gonna bet $25 hands. Same thing, so 25 to 50, 50 to 75, 75 down, 75 down, up to 125. The same system, just with larger denominations. Anyway, I just killed it. I caught a streak. And the best part about this streak is when you start betting, if you're betting $25 hands or $10 hands, and all before you know it, you're betting $150 hands or $200 hands, it catches a lot of attention because then they think you're counting cards because you're changing your bet and you're winning. And whenever the casino sees you changing your bet while you're winning, they figure that you're counting into the shoe. What happens is you get all these observers, not just the electronic observers watching digitally, you actually get crowded by pit bosses and more pit bosses get called over. And I caught such a heater, I must have won 25 hands in a row. I mean, I was really, we were really going and I was pressed up to something ridiculous. For me, ridiculous, it was pressed up to $300 or something like that. I finally lost it on a split eights against a dealer's six. I drew to 20 on both hands because it was an eight and a two and an eight and a two. And then I lost because a dealer uh, drew a five for a 21. So I lost it all. But then after that was a $1,200 bet, I had $1,200 in chips out on there. I went back and the system says, no matter how much you win, you never keep your bet up. You go back to your original bet. So I went up to $25. So I lose the bet. All those chips go off. $25 comes out and I start betting $25 hands again. They stayed for about two or three more hands and then all the pit bosses walked away and the, what the casino knows is they'll never they'll never never see that money again because they're not going to make it back with me betting 25 dollars hands so the key to the system is that there is nothing special about it it's just perfect play which anyone can do 
combined with an understanding that the odds don't favor win-lose, win-lose, win-lose. What always happens is a series of wins and a series of losses. What you're planning on and what you're betting on is that streak. And that streak does happen. It happens all the time. Go walking through a casino and see, look at the roulette wheel and see how many reds there are in a row or how many blacks there are in a row. The odds of that happening, almost impossible, but it happens all the time. I've played it maybe 10 times, seriously, and I've always won, every single time. And sometimes I've won a little, and sometimes I've won a lot. You must be disciplined in order to make this system successful. You have to be. You cannot play a hunch ever. And that's true with any perfect play. You can never, ever play a hunch, even if you're right. You cannot break the rules. You follow the rules. For perfect play, you give yourself a 49.5% chance of winning, and then you play the bet and press system. That's how it works. And the discipline is to hit that 16 against dealer 17, you always have to do it. You always have to split when you're supposed to. You always have to hit on the soft 18, even though you think that you that the dealers has something less than a 10 underneath their nine. You have to hit that soft 18. You must be disciplined. And so many people don't have that discipline. So many people think they can alter the odds just a bit, just a hair over that 49.5% by playing the right hunch. And then when they win, they think that they got it. Well, you don't got it. Because the moment you break that discipline is the moment you've lost. We should not pretend to understand the world only by the intellect. We apprehend it just as much by feeling. Therefore, the judgment of the intellect is, at best, only the half of truth, and must, if it be honest, also come to an understanding of its inadequacy. M.C. Jiggy Young We all have abilities that are innate. Some we pursue on our own, and others are latent within us and require another person to bring them forth or teach us how to use them. These teachers come to us throughout our lives from the beginning to the end. Carla tells a story of her greatest teacher. When I was three, there was a bombing in Lima, in a high-rise office building close to my Uncle Juan's house. It was the same night that my father telephoned my tia in Washington, D.C. to let her know that he had applied for a visa to get our family out of Peru and far away from the shining path. Those were the days when curfews were enforced, keeping people off the street after 7 p.m. The consequence for disobedience was a game of chicken that usually ended with a gunshot. My Aunt Cecilia had been caught on her way home from a friend's house. She was released only after she sufficiently groveled for her life. My mother had a constant furrowed expression and a growing pregnant belly. By the time my brother was born, my father had received his visa approval. The granting had a caveat. He was allowed only one dependent and not the three he had hoped for. The choice was made in the late hours, through low voices and quiet tears. It was summer in Peru, the opposite of Washington, the morning I woke up to the suitcase. Back then, he was the most beautiful person I had ever seen, 
a Croatian-Peruvian god with mutton-chopped sideburns and a wispy head full of hair. I said goodbye to my mommy and kissed my baby brother like I did when we went to the supermarket. I wouldn't see them in D.C. for another two and a half years. Our airplane landed at Washington Dulles during one of the coldest winters in metro history. I can still see the popcorn ceilings, so unlike the hand-plastered ceilings of the buildings in San Miguel. As my father hoisted me on his shoulders, I tried to reach my fingers to touch it, wishing I could extend my hands like rubber. Just behind the sliding automatic doors was my tia, waiting in her little white Corolla to take us to the small apartment we would share with her and Abuelita in Van Ness, a few blocks from Howard University. My father took a job as a security guard, pulling double shifts and all-nighters for the Argentine embassy. I became indulgent in making scenes when he left every day, holding onto his hand, and then his leg, and then grabbing onto his shoe as he walked out the door. He was the only thing I had that resembled the life I'd known, and also the symbol of all the things I had lost. There were a handful of times when I'd go to work with him in his BW Bug, the same type of car we had owned in Lima. I sat on his lap pretending to smoke a candy cigarette while he drove and tugged at his Marlboro. And those were good days. But most days, I'd spend with Abuelita in her kitchen. She would cook and clean and sing songs of longing in Spanish. In the afternoons, we'd lay in her bed and laugh at TV shows we didn't understand. An insomniac, most nights she'd wait for my father until 2.30 a.m. with a bowl of sopa a la minuta, ready for an adult opponent to play at Pac-Man. On adventurous days, we would go for long walks to the supermarket and I'd help her select her dinner ingredients carefully. Lentils, onions, carrots, beef tripe, potatoes. We'd walk home intently focused and ready to observe the homeless man who slept in front of the people's pharmacy over the air vent, the irritated march of the men in suits onto the buses that seemed to be taking them to their doom, the trembling gray branches, the elegant coats of the working Washingtonian women, all while enjoying a hard candy or two. When we got home, I'd wash the vegetables, and she would begin to prepare the meat. And during one of these days, just outside, the snow began to float. Mira, she said, wiping her hands on her apron and running to the window with wide mouth and wild eyes. I gasped and clasped my mouth. We stood, without exchanging words, with the surprise of two children. And it snowed like that on and off until it was over four feet high. A few days later, when we were walking out of the supermarket, she misstepped on the curb and fell. The contents of our dinner spilled off the sidewalk and onto the road. My reaction was to grab the onions, grab them off the road before a car smashes them. No, she hollered. It would be the only time she ever raised her voice at me. I could see through her pain She was trying not to frighten and protect me all at once. But I was scared. Her smile was my safety, the continuous beam of warmth that kept me in the light. I don't remember what happened that day, 
how we got home, whether Abuelita broke her arm or not. But I remember the two years that followed were the years that built my character. Sitting on my stool in her kitchen, I understood the beauty of the world with only the smell of legumes cooking in the pot, the buzz of a tiny beige television set blaring Benny Hill, and the steady flow of her curious love. When my mother finally arrived in the U.S., Dad had shaved his chops. My brother, too afraid to detach from her body, had learned to speak jibber-jabber. We moved to a house in the suburbs. We cooked out. Dad steadily began to lose his hair. I grew up around the glow of Abuelita, studying her joy, fascination, and secured her as my 4'11", 56-year-old genotype template. I got married, had children, moved to a suburb of my own in Las Vegas. She visited with my tia for a housewarming party. While the others mingled and sipped champagne, she sat contentedly on the couch staring out the window and up into the sky. Abuelita, what are you looking at? I asked, sitting down next to her. She pointed at the window. A bird had flown into it and left a glorious shape that only the sun's reflection could show. It's a good sign. You're going to be very happy here. And we were for a while. She was my giggling cherub, even months later when she was diagnosed with small cell lung cancer. She rode roller coasters, cursed, laughed, danced, loved humans and animals alike until months before she died. I never ate sopa la minuta again. And now writing this, I realized she left me the power I was so afraid to lose when she left me. She gave me a way of viewing the world with magic and possibility. It's helped make me the artist, mother, and friend that I am. Because of her love, I know what it's like to be seen, and so I trust my own sight. I still graze her room, looking for her ghost. I open drawers to find scraps of her existence, smell her clothes like every other person that's ever lost access to a soul they love. I watch the snow fall out the window now. It's like the first time I've ever seen it, like a Peruvian woman in an apron raising a granddaughter as a daughter. And that's how I'll see everything. You've just heard Emily Meyer, Sanchez, Larrabee, Jay Bone, Ryan Agensberger, Alex Taylor, and Carla Taylor. Special thanks to Kelly Zamanik and Maria Popova of Brain Pickings for some of the research notes. Ripple Puddle is produced by myself, Carla Taylor, and Stephanie Hafer. Theme music by Stephanie Hafer. Hot Tips theme by Carla Taylor and Broke for Free. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out where you can watch the incredible footage of Aretha Franklin, Move the Crowd, and the information about upcoming episodes at www.ripplepuddle.com. We'd also love to hear from you. Yes, you. If you'd like to pitch a story, email us at ripplepuddle at gmail.com or leave it at 313-389-6013. Don't forget to subscribe and review us on iTunes. It keeps iTunes happy, which pushes up up to the top of the lists 
which in turn makes us happy and inspired to create more episodes. Here's a teaser for episode five, Multiplicity, due out March 2nd. Multiplicity is a fragrance. It brings out the best part of you. That is part of you. That's you. Sprayed on your wrists. Decolletage. Elbows. Behind your knees. In your mouth. Available for women. And men. And dogs. Cats too. Try Multiplicity soon. Available at your local home office operating room, butcher school, or DJ booth, and just about anywhere, anytime. Join us for episode five, Multiplicity, where we look at the different versions of ourselves. March 2nd. Bring all your egos. We'll see you all then. This and much more. Come on in. The water's great.